what would happen if other people could feel some of the wonder that I've been lucky enough to feel for all these years? What would happen if instead of fighting over scarcity, we figured out how to dance around abundance, to build tools together? Welcome to Smart Rookie, where we shine a light on remarkable lives and careers defined by wildly winding paths rather than tidy straight lines. Join us as we speak with people who are fueled by wonder, grounded in humility, and perhaps most importantly, forever having fun. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Tallerman. And I'm Chelsea Carlson. To all the smart rookies out there, welcome to our kitchen table. Let's dig in. Why don't we warm up with our favorite question? What's your favorite cookie and why? Well, it has to be made by By The Way Bakery. I'm not much of a cookie person, but By The Way Bakery should be your first choice for all your cookie needs. There we go. And those are gluten-free. Dairy-free and kosher, too. Wow. All the frees, except for free. Okay. Chelsea. Hi, Seth. Really good to meet you. I just want to say my intro to you was in Debbie Millman's class where we read The Practice, and I have never felt so personally called out by a book in my whole life. <laughs> so thank you for that. Well, Debbie's one of my dearest, so I'm glad you were able to be in her class. So Seth, we started this podcast because we were very suspicious of the idea of expertise and the idea that having all the answers should even be on a pedestal. So of course, we started digging around your blog, one of my favorite places to dig around when I'm looking for random inspiration. And my question immediately out the gate for you is, how do you resist the pressure to have all the answers, just knowing that you're being interviewed all the time, you're writing all the time? How do you resist? that pressure when you have this label of expert. Okay, so there's so many premises that we have to examine before we start. Because if I start before we examine the premises, then we're going to get stuck on the words. Words like expertise or genius or rookie. Because we already jumped to conclusions about what those things are. I'm going to start with expertise. Expertise cannot be dismissed. Expertise is extraordinarily valuable. We live in an era where everyone thinks that they can be an expert just because they got elected to something or because they have access to chat GPT. But when people get really sick, they don't go to the person down the street who's got three playing cards to make them better. They go to the best expert they can find. Expertise should not be dismissed. There is a difference between expertise and being a know-it-all. There's a difference between expertise and being sure you have the answers. But the best diagnostician don't say, I know exactly what's wrong with you. They ask questions to figure out what's going on, and then they bring their expertise to the fore. So to answer your question now, I would say, when I show up on a podcast, generally, I question the question before I answer anything, as I just did. And when we see the systems that are at work, most people are able to figure out what to do next. Where we get stuck is when we don't see the system. We don't see who is manipulating us, who is indoctrinating us, where we are being taken advantage of. And being able to think clearly about this requires some practice, some history, but also requires being brave enough to dismiss 
the quick answer. So I have so many questions coming out of that. We'll get to the one on systems. But is there anyone in your life who may not have had the trappings of expertise, letters after their name, awards on their walls, but who stands out as a notable expert in their own way? I don't find very much correlation between the prizes of the accredited academy and actual expertise. The person who did the shoulder surgery on my left shoulder when I was 17 years old had all the MD stuff, and it's been bothering me ever since. Two years later, I went to the doctor for the U.S. ski team for my right shoulder, and it hasn't bothered me at all. Now, that's anecdotal data, but my take on this is Dr. Leach did five of them every week, over and over and over. He wasn't a beginner. He was an expert at it. He knew every shoulder was different, but the piece of paper wasn't the key. The key was the experience and the willingness to commit to a practice of doing this work. So the people who have made a difference in my life, teachers in particular, they're not teachers who have a PhD in teaching. They're teachers who have done the work and who can see the pattern and who can understand what rhymes with what, the genre drives so much of what we do. So yeah, every once in a while, Ricky Lee Jones makes a record that changes the whole world. But you're way more likely to have a musician whose fifth record really hits where it's supposed to go, not their first. And you and I have been around for a while. We're both baby boomers, and we've been practicing for a long time. And you recently said something in an interview with Tim Ferriss that really struck a chord with me and the sort of profound connection I have to being a rookie. You said that boomers are shouting about the end of the world, maybe because it's the end of our world, but this is the beginning of so many others. And I know you and I have talked about the work I've done in the nuclear space and coining this term generation possible. I'm thinking about how do we leverage our boomer power some of the accumulated wisdom to fuel rookie inventiveness and energy. Okay. I'm going to just take a minute to talk about the word rookie. So I was a terrible hockey player, but when I was 16, I became a hockey coach and I was good at it. And hockey is one of those sports where there's a big deal made about the rookie of the year. And what it means to be the rookie of the year is the opposite of what the show is about. Understanding what it is to be a rookie is you are trying as fast as you can to act like a veteran, that the rookie of the year is the player who is most like the person who's been playing for 10 years. That's not what we're here to talk about. And what we're actually talking about is beginner's mind. And we're talking about curiosity. And we're talking about the resilience of saying this might not work. And the problem that every generation has when it hits last innings is it's really hard to say this might not work. And so plenty of our peers are saying, Solar power is never going to work, even though solar power is now the cheapest form of electricity available. They say it's never going to be possible for AI to do this, this, or this, but now AI can read x-rays as well as a mediocre radiologist. So we're used to, every generation by the time it gets this far, we're used to being able to be dismissive because we don't want to say this might not work. Best thing that we can do is say to someone with beginner's mind, interesting, then what will happen? Then what will happen? How do you think that will unfold? Let's investigate your 
thesis. Let's investigate your assertions. But I'm rooting for you. This might work. And if it holds up, that's fantastic. My job might be to say, have you thought about what happens when this thing happens? Because you may have not thought about that, and it happened to me five times. I would love to see more of that coming from boomers. The, what if this? What if this? Let's ask a question instead of that won't work. On the this might not work note, you also wrote about this idea that experts have an urge to protect what's already known, which feels like because it might involve disagreeing with themselves or disagreeing with the people that they learn from or the shoulders that they're standing on. I'm curious for you personally, have you been in situations where you had to disagree with previous versions of yourself and how do you navigate that? Well, I'll tell you the most expensive one. It's not the one that closes to my soul, but it's obviously the most expensive one. It was a mistake that cost me $50 billion back when a dollar was worth something. I started one of the first internet companies. I invented email marketing. And for six years, we were peddling as fast as we could. It was a very hard thing to do. And the World Wide Web came along. And I looked at the World Wide Web because we were on Prodigy and AOL and CompuServe. And I looked at it and I said, this will never work. There's no business model. It's slow. It's clunky. No one's in charge. And I made it so that no one in my company could talk about it for months. And at the same time, two guys in California named David and Jerry saw exactly what I saw and they built Yahoo. And so my half of Yahoo would have been worth a lot of money, but I didn't do that. So it took me a little bit to hear the sound of what it sounds like to change your mind. And I fell in love with that noise, that if you truly innovate, is to say, I used to believe X. I wonder what it sounds like when I believe Y instead. And that doesn't mean you don't have principle. It means you dismiss tactics and embrace strategies. I have to pick this up and you're going to recognize <laughs> this. I have this in close proximity all the time. And how to change your mind is just behind me out of the frame. But the part of this block that I think you made, I know you made and sent to me, that I've been looking at most is trust yourself. And it just strikes me that that, I don't know if it's a product of age, but it gets harder, not easier, if what you're doing is not what you've done before. And this idea of that noise of changing your mind and trust yourself have to go hand in hand. Yeah. So let's break this into pieces. The original title of the book, Chelsea, was not the practice. It was trust yourself. It doesn't say Trust yourself. If you look, it says trust yourself. Yourself, two words, is different than yourself, one word. So I argue in the book that we have two selves. We have the self that is experienced and calculating and has figured certain things out. And then we have the other voice, the one we hear when we're talking to ourselves. And that's the one that's like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And the reason that resistance occurs, the reason that people get writer's block, the fear that comes from this might not work is we have two voices in our head. And what trust yourself means is don't bet your house on it. Don't bet everything on it. But when that little voice says something that might bring some light to the table, hear it out. What if this works? Let's see. It's such an optimistic question. I've got to ask, as you start to define rookie the way we're talking about it, which is embracing this learning mind, embracing this incredible opportunity to be wrong so you can learn something new, is choosing to be a rookie an act of optimism? 
how could it not be, right? You can live with your parents and try to get a job working at the local pizzeria, and then you're not a rookie. What we're doing when we say, I want to explore a liminal state between here and there, is we are saying, perhaps I could show up in this space and make things better. That feels to me like the optimism that we need. Unfortunately, we've been indoctrinated to say what you're supposed to do is get an internship that's not paid, and then get an entry-level job where you get coffee, and then do what you're told, and do what you're told, and do what you're told. And so 20 years from now, you're allowed to innovate. And I think what a lot of people are discovering is because the means of production, the keyboard is right in front of anybody who has $149 by a laptop. You don't have to do all those steps anymore. You have to be resilient. You have to have a strategy. But you can skip 15 years of slowly getting expertise in exchange for generously getting expertise very quickly by doing a sort of failure that helps other people. It doesn't hurt them. What you're saying about this, this is supposed to lead that, she's supposed to lead to that attitude reminds me of something in Song of Significance we are talking about, asking questions in order to get to a very specific solution, deliverable thing at the end of the rainbow versus actually wondering, actually just open up your mind with the possibility that there maybe is no answer, that it's something completely different than you imagined. Curious, how would you recommend starting out freeing yourself from the obligation of doing that step-by-step clear, useful answers versus the possibility of an inconvenient discovery? So let's talk about Pictionary for a minute. Chelsea, have you ever played? Of course. I'm sure you're great at it. (laughs) So it turns out that it doesn't matter if you're good at drawing. I'm terrible at it. And most people aren't very good at Pictionary. In fact, I usually win. And that's because there's a flaw in the rules, if you think about it from one point of view, which is there is no penalty for guessing wrong. And so the correct way to play Pictionary is a person touches the pen and you start going, it's a boat, it's a ship, it's a plane, it's a building, it's hacky-packy, and you just keep talking. And now you're having an interaction with the other person because they can hear what you're saying and draw in response to it. You're not sitting there watching Van Gogh draw this perfect thing and then you announce the man with one ear. What you're doing is having a dialogue where one person's drawing and one person's talking. And I tell people this secret and I still beat them because they refuse to do it. Because people, they don't want to say it's a plane if it's obviously a boat. But it didn't cost anything to say it's a plane. You just put more information on the table. So what we're talking about here, again, you have to have a playpen, a safe place you're doing this. You're not making it up while you're doing heart surgery. But what you are doing is making assertions creating straw people, knocking them down, and putting up another one. One of the challenges that I see, and this is a generational thing for people who are my age and younger, is somewhere along the way, people persuaded us that you have to have the courage and the conviction of your ideas. And do not listen to any reality and do not listen to any criticism. Just keep doing your thing. And people I care about have been doing their thing for 10 or 20 years, and it's still not working because they're not listening to what the world is telling them when they do their thing. So part of this might work is this might not work. And you have to be okay with that and with quitting and with saying I was wrong and with saying I'm going to make a new decision based on new information. If you can't do those things, then nothing's ever going to get better. Related to that, I was jotting down some quotes today. And while 
there's probably a dozen quotes that when I'm teaching in my SVA class, I can bring up of Seth Godin's. These are all brand new ones for me. And I think one of my favorite new ones and words that I live by, that everybody needs to live by, it's the first part of the quote I love the best. Conversation needs to happen more. Meetings need to happen never. And I agree with that. And the- Wait, Elizabeth, can we make this a policy? <laughs> this is a policy we need to institute. No, no meetings. meetings. No meetings. I'm on board. The conversation needs to happen more, I think, in a practice that Chelsea and I are a part of. We have this auditing process. And all of a sudden on a Miro board, in a charrette, in a room, there's lots of things on the wall. And I encourage my students and I do it myself. I can't help myself. I pick up one from column A and one from column B and one from column C. And I just start telling a story until somebody nods up and down. I'm like, oh, okay, now we've got a thread. Now we've got it. So for our viewers at home, would you please tell everyone what a charrette is? A charrette is, I don't know if I have the proper definition, but it's when you have as much information as possible physically in a place on a wall and you can pick it up, you can move it, you can push it around. It could be sticky notes. It could just be pieces of paper you've taped up. You've basically created a massive mind collage. Did I get that right? Well, that is a symptom of a charrette. I'm going to explain what a charrette is because it's one of my very favorite words. It's one of the best things I learned in college. I learned it in college because I did not go to Harvard. I went to college 10 miles away, and I used to go to Harvard Square all the time. And in Harvard Square, I don't know if it's still there, there's an art supply store called Charette. And I went, and the first time I said, what the hell's a Charette? A Charette is what happens when architecture students or architects have a project due the next day, and they stay up all night, and that's where the best ideas come from because they're so punch drunk, they're so out of time. They're so desperate that their guard goes down, the resistance goes away, and this thing occurs. And so your use of this board filled with opportunity is magic. And the professional figures out how to have a charrette before the deadline. That when we can create a practice of saying, this is the cheap moment to move pieces around. This is the moment of highest leverage, the moment we signed up for all those years ago. Let's not rush through it. Let's cherish it because it's in these juxtapositions of possibility that we're going to find something that's worth doing. Because guess what? If all you're doing is grinding it out, and all you're doing is the mediocre work, I got an AI that can do that cheaper than you. Chelsea, I saw you smiling because this put ourselves under this enormous amount of pressure the day before is our MO, which kills me every time. Not okay. We're trying to get out of it. We're really trying. They call it a deadline for a reason, and half of that word is one you don't want to deal with. That's right. Chelsea, you have to read this note that you just wrote down for Seth. Oh, I, I'm just writing it as a personal definition. So shred, faux, procrastination, magic. I think, yeah, I mean, we did successfully do this actually last week, which I was very proud of us for. We got whatever that feeling is where you just feel like, yes, I can do anything because I have to work adrenaline. I want to get better at that skill of just like, turning it on or creating the environment where it can happen. So here's a tactic. This book took a year of my life and I did it with 300 and then 1,900 volunteers. I was a volunteer too in 90 countries. It's 97,000 words long. We finished it in 150 days, three days ahead of schedule. 
without one significant error. It's all footnoted. And I didn't write it, but I definitely helped organize it. We had our charrette in November, and then we had another one in December, and we had a third one in January. We handed the book in in February. And during the entire month of February, no one was allowed to have one creative idea. The only purpose of February is to finish the book we designed in January. Do not talk to me about something that would make it better. That was for January. We're done with that. And you show up and you ship the work. And I've never gone over budget and I've never missed a deadline because you zip the project when you run out of time or you run out of money. That's it. There's no exception. Well, you'll be happy to know that ship it is frequently uttered <laughs> at Nucleus. We are constantly looking at each other and saying, all right, team, ship it. And the person most responsible for that is Sarah Hermelin, who went through the Alt-MBA, came back to us and said, that's it, guys. When I tell you to ship it, we're done. We're done here. I think that what you were able to do with the Carbon Almanac challenged the system as opposed to challenge individuals. To come together as a collective is pretty extraordinary and pretty necessary. And one of the things we're starting to see in culture is more collectivism. In fact, a friend of mine pointed out to me the other day, as we were looking at real creative force, especially by millennials and Gen Z, even alphas, they're creating in post-apocalyptic frameworks. And those post-apocalyptic frameworks used to be very libertarian. The survivor coming out from behind the rock to repopulate the planet. They were always very attractive, a couple somehow. But lately, there's been an entire sort of movement entry into that genre of collectivism because it's our only way out or forward. And I see you working in a collectivist way. What does that mean, collectivism, for you? So it's so fraught. It's fraught because its origins are in the dyad between the factory owner and the factory worker. And the slogan is, I just want your half, right? That the idea that if you own the means of production, your job is to extract as much labor from people for as little as possible leads to the dialectic alternative, which is therefore death to the system and the person who owns the machine is a problem. And I think we've had enough history to know that that's not going to be an easy sale to make and pull off and doesn't generally lead to the productivity and connection that we see. The different kind is one that's modeled, I think, beautifully in the open source free software movement, which is that tools get better if other people can make the tools better. And if we permit other people to make the tools better, then we all benefit from better tools. That doesn't mean there isn't someone in charge. You couldn't make Linux do something unless Linus or somebody else said it was okay. You couldn't commit anything you wanted to any piece of software. Being in charge is different than exploiting labor. So I and a few other people were a bottom line on the Almanac when things about dates and policies and no, we're not going to write about this and we are going to write about that. But nobody was exploited because everyone was a volunteer and you could leave if you wanted to. So how do you create the conditions for someone to contribute? If we look at a company like Automatic and compare it to a company like Google, Google started with the slogan, don't be evil, which meant don't be Microsoft. And it meant don't seek to be a monopolist and don't 
exploit your workers or your customers. But once they started creating millionaires and more millionaires and more millionaires, and there's all these people who are looking at the stock price, the dynamic internally changed. Whether or not Sergey did it on purpose, Larry did it on purpose, it changed to, we need to make the stock price go up because I'm surrounded by people who will benefit. And so they became a monopolist, just like Microsoft was. And they built a lot of dark patterns that took advantage and took all the money off the table. Automatic, on the other hand, is 2,000 people. They power 37% of the entire internet. They run WordPress and lots of other things. And they don't have an office. And they don't have meetings. And there is a hierarchy. But what they built is a reading and writing culture where you make your case and people comment on it. And people comment on it. And then something happens. And the cycle of possibility that occur in an institution like that, I think rhyme with the collectivism you're talking about, but they're not based on exploiting labor. They're based on building better tools. You said something recently about criticize the work, not the worker. And with tools and parameters and deadlines, then workers can do what they want, can do what they need to do, can do something meaningful. And I'd like this to be true. I have a dream that this is true, but you talked about the Carbon Almanac being a group of volunteers. The way I see work and the way the people that work with me work is voluntarily. Now, maybe that's a very privileged position because they're able to make a living. They're not forced into doing something that they don't want to do. But I feel like for so many people, for so many knowledge workers, it is a form of volunteering. And when you're done volunteering, you go elsewhere. Yeah, I like to say everybody has to work. You have to work either to feed your family or to not go crazy. But you don't have to work here. And so at that level, except in some very, very, very poor corners of the world, people have a choice. They're going to work, but are they going to work here? And I don't know why it popped into my head, but if you've been to an Indian restaurant that had papadam, those crispy lentil wafers, I've blogged about them a couple of times because I think they're one of the most perfect foods in the world. And because a lot of people read my blog, I get notes back. Turns out that almost all the papad that you could buy in the United States come in these crinkly saran things. And there's a picture on the front. It's sort of a woman and sort of a rabbit. It's hard to tell what it is, but you're probably visualizing it right now. It's only one company that makes all of them. And they have more than 10,000 employees in more than 10 cities across India. And every single one of them is a woman including all the way up to senior management. And they wanted to create a safe place for women to be able to go to work without harassment, with dignity, with respect, without misogyny. And they went to an extreme to do it. So I'm going to argue that every single person who works there could work somewhere else, but they've chosen to work there because they stand for something. And at that level, yeah, I think it's voluntary. So we're going to hit you with another quote of yours. It's good because my memory is a sieve. These are all new to me. I'm like, oh, that sounds smart. <laughs> That's great. From Song of Significant, work is the expression of our energy and our dreams. And after four decades of work, what is it you're volunteering for? What are you dreaming of now? I have big dreams and little dreams. A little dream is maybe there's something I can say on this call that would light up one of the two of you in a way you didn't expect. Maybe I'm going to invent a game or a game dynamic or a system 
that is going to touch somebody in a way that they'll remember. Maybe I'll write a blog post that even scares me. I did one last week. Those are sort of my little ones. But bigger ones are, I won the parent lottery. I won the birthday lottery. And my generation is the last generation that isn't going to have to worry about carbon. So all that got handed to me. What would happen if other people could feel some of the wonder that I've been lucky enough to feel for all these years? What would happen if instead of fighting over scarcity, we figured out how to dance around abundance, to build tools together? And so that's sort of my big dream. I don't like conflict. I play Wordmaster Pro, which is like Scrabble, but I refuse to play against any other people because I don't want to win or lose. I just want to play. And I'm hoping that we created enough productivity and wealth in the world that maybe we could play more and fight less. Chelsea, this plays into your 2024. You got to go for that. I know. I have to chime in. Well, too, because you mentioned wonder and we went through cobblers trying to make their own shoes, thinking about our own brand this year and came down to one word, which was wonder as the thing that fuels us and gets everyone excited and is the reason people opt in and say yes. So yes to wonder. But on a personal level, my word for the next year is play and making absolutely every part of everything I'm doing play as much as humanly possible. So yes to play. Terrific. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is that you've put yourself in the rookie seat over and over again, tried new things, new formats, new companies. Could you just tell us about a couple of your favorite rookie experiences and maybe how one unexpectedly led to another? It is true. I've probably done it more than most people. After I left Yahoo, I decided I wanted to be a columnist for Fast Company Magazine. Fast Company Magazine was brand new. It was an extraordinary document. The problem was they didn't have any columnists. And so it was hard to apply for that because Alan and Bill didn't want there to be columns in their magazine. So I didn't want to be a pest, but I started writing a column for Fast Company and just mailing it to them for a month every week. And after like the 11th one, they called me up and they said, well, we got a lot of ads. So, okay, we'll win your column. And walking into their office, the energy in that place in Boston, half the people there were experienced journalists. I was not. But to feel that energy was spectacular. When I first met Jacqueline Novogratz from Acumen, Acumen was three people. I had no experience. My dad had a lot. My mom had a lot. But I had no experience as doing professional fundraising or helping charities with stuff like that. But walking into that space, seeing the magic that Jacqueline and others were bringing to the table, it was thrilling. But it's also like the way I felt when I took a skate skiing lesson at 50 years old because I'd broken enough parts of my body that I couldn't do the other kind of skiing anymore. And the way skate skiing works is you lean forward so much that you're about to fall on your face and that's what makes you go forward. And if you don't commit to that, you just stand there. And I just remember how that felt. And that's sort of what I'm looking for metaphorically in so many things. And I'll give you one other one that's so weird. We were on a family trip to an all-you-can-eat resort in Jamaica. And they had one of those big water slides. And there was only one day left. And there was a guard at the top of the water slide. And it was the end of the day. And the guy goes down and he hits the water on his butt and skids for 30 feet across the top of the pool. We call it the Jesus butt slide. It was the most amazing thing I ever saw. And I ran over to the guy and said, you got to teach me how to do that. 
I need to know how to do that. I said, oh man, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. And fortunately, I had $20 in my wallet. I handed him 20 bucks. I said, come back tomorrow morning when the pool opens. I'm leaving at 11 a.m. I need to learn how to do that. And it took me like eight tries. I still remember. Amazing. Amazing. I love that. So, all right. Being a rookie has an adrenaline component to it, clearly. It has optimism to it. Is there a difference between being a rookie and a smart rookie? Ah, I have so many stories to tell, but it feels to me like the essence of it is smart rookie is not just curious, but generous, that you would be missed if you were gone, that the work you are doing is not to fill your bucket or your resume, but to be of service and to be of use and to learn as you go. And that journey is generative and it has the lovely side effect of getting you the chance to do it again. I'm just going to assert that most of the people who are listening to this are walking into a job they have to have and they want to do well in it, walking into a career. They're not 60 years old looking for something fun to do. They're showing up and saying, there are all these people who are taller, older, whatever than me, making me feel small. And how do I be a smart rookie? So my smart rookie experience at the beginning of my career is I was out of my league at Spinnaker Software. I was the 30th employee. I was 23 years old. The other brand managers were in their 30s. They all had lots of experience at ice cream companies and everything else. And it was almost 40 years ago today because it was Christmas. And I had nothing to do on Christmas Day. So I went in and I answered the customer service phone because the company was going to be closed. And we made educational computer games for kids. And so on Christmas Day, I answered 200, 300 phone calls because no one was going to do it anyway. So I did something of service. And not only did I serve the customers, but I served the company. And there was no one to tell me I couldn't do it. There was no one to tell me I was doing it wrong. And it was better than nothing. And for the next bunch of years, two years, at every meeting, I could say to people, oh yeah, when I was answering this call, that call, that call, I had had these experiences with people. And I got smarter, faster, because I had done it. Oh, you just made my heart explode. <laughs> you have a habit of doing that kind of thing. Seth, it has been an absolute pleasure. It is every time we get a chance to talk. Thank you for being generous and generative and for keeping us inspired. Thank you for always embracing your inner rookie and doing new things and taking us with you. Well, thank you both for having me. Keep making this ruckus because it does matter. Seth Godin challenges us to hear the sound of changing our own minds. Boss Molly put out a challenge as well. They challenged themselves to make a bourbon for people who might not have normally tried it. Boss Molly set out to create a bourbon, and they also created a whole new kind of bourbon drinker, the Bourbon Curious. Are you curious about Boss Molly bourbon? Go out and get a bottle. You'll love it. One of the things I appreciate was Seth pushing back a little bit and talking about the necessity of expertise in some cases, but that expertise comes from practice, not from being credentialed, not from a system putting you in some hierarchical spot, and that experts actually, I think, really do embrace what we call rookie or what he aptly called a beginner's mind. You know, the power of the expert is knowing when to ask questions before 
offering advice. I was so delighted out the gate for that exact same reason when he completely blew up my long-winded question of, here's my whole setup, here's what we're doing, here's what I want you to talk about. And he's like, cool, cool, cool. Ignore all of that. Let's talk about the bones of this thing. And I reject all of your assumptions. And I was so delightful and humbling. And I don't know, I just loved it because he demonstrated the exact thing that we're trying to show with this podcast. That's like, hey, be wrong. Try a thing. Be wrong again. Be delighted in being wrong because it's absolutely the best thing if you let it be a positive instead of a defeat. He pushed that point when he talked about Pictionary that said, there's an economics issue here that when the economics of failure, when the penalty for failure is high, people won't embrace it. And not embracing the possibility that you're wrong will either never get you to the point of innovation and the risk that's necessary for doing something new, or it will hold you in a place that fails to be right in the long term because everything changes over time. So I love this idea that when you create the environment for being wrong, then it does become thrilling because each time you're wrong, you get closer to doing something new or being right or right her or at least less wrong, less wrong. <laughs> and that relates too to the discussion of if expertise is about practice and ultimately expertise is gained by step by step, by step, then how does someone who hasn't had as much time at something get ahead? And the answer is possibility, taking a leap, jumping to a thoughtful conclusion that isn't step by step. And Seth talked about that when we brought up the charrette and the idea that here is the moment when you get to juxtapose possibility versus grinding it out. You can bring lots of people together of many different levels to see things anew. And that is thrilling to me. On that note of how do you get ahead? How do you learn things when you kind of don't know anything? I love the story that Seth shared about kind of doing the thing that nobody else wants to do that's not necessarily in your job description that he showed up on Christmas to answer the phone. I have a few things like that in my early career that was like, nobody said I couldn't do this. And I feel like I would learn something. So why don't I just try it and see what happens? And people are so pleasantly delighted when you just jump in on something in a helpful way, which does require a judgment call on what's helpful, but it can really be a magical moment. And the fruit from that moment is incredible, right? As Seth said, he listened in on customer calls at a toy company on Christmas Day. And for the next two years in meetings, he could say, well, customers say this or the experience of customers at a critical moment is that. And he characterized it by getting smarter, faster. And when you have a rookie mindset and you're open to possibility and you're in conditions where failure doesn't mean penalty, that's when things get real. That's when things change. That's when getting smarter, faster, being generative leads to what he called cycles of possibility. And I love 
that term. The cycles of possibility depend on those of us who may have more step-by-step wisdom, creating the conditions for more people to contribute. And in that way, work is based on collectivism versus some individual striving to be the best and climb a ladder and the notion that success is a collectivist endeavor was really exciting to me. Yeah, that piece about don't try to fill your bucket and resume, just try to be of use, try to give other people things with the things that you're doing is so delightful and so anti-pop LinkedIn wisdom that I adore it. I also loved his story about and that you have to basically be falling in order to move at all. And oof, how perfect for a smart rookie. I just, I'm going to hold on to that metaphor for forever. Well, talk about putting your head over your skis, right? In the best way, in the way that gives you some velocity, not that tumbles you down the hill. As our interview came to a conclusion, and it, it literally felt like it was five seconds after it started, Seth posited about wonder. And of course, that thrilled me to the core. I wonder what would happen if other people could feel some of the wonder I've been lucky enough to feel for all these years. And that wonder was centered around the notions of scarcity and abundance, where he reminds us that instead of fighting over scarcity, the one position, the one thing, what happens when we dance around abundance? And his answer to that was, we build tools together to play more and fight less. And that's really got me wondering about the role of tools, about being a tool builder, about tools literally being conditions, the conditions for people to contribute more. So we just need to figure out how to make the world more like a game of Pictionary. Less penalties for failure. That's what we do, not at all points in our work, but at certain particular points where like, okay, nothing is dumb, nothing is wrong, nothing is off the table, put it on the table, let's look at it all together. And that's one of my favorite parts always, because bringing in complete left field things as ways in, as like, I don't know, I have no idea, but this made me think of this. And what if that connection means something could be interesting. That's really this notion, this definition of being a rookie and choosing to explore liminal spaces between right and wrong, here and there, start and finish, this way versus that way. And in exploring these spaces, you do that with optimism. You do that because there is something that might come out of it. The section on boomers in particular, one of the things I enjoyed about it was this moment of there's assume positive possibilities way to impart or add a layer of wisdom onto ideas so that mistakes don't happen that don't need to happen. But it's making space for like, maybe you're right, which is not always or usually the way that wisdom or expertise gets applied. It's usually like, I know this and therefore this won't work versus like, I know this and therefore what about that? Which is so much more delightful and creative. Yeah, I kind of feel like millennial politeness, if you will, at least in front of us boomers, crept into my life 
with the phrase, how might we? And it was the polite millennial way to say, hey, you know it all, boomer. Let's just suspend for a moment. How might we blank? And I think that if boomer is a proxy for gathered wisdom or expertise, then the check on that is to own it, to hold that, to really be good at what your practice is and leave open the possibility that the practice evolves and still evolves and evolves yet even more, that a practice by its very nature is generative and iterative. Join us at thenucleusgroup.com. You'll find a page where you can book an hour. If you're wondering about something juicy, can't quite crack the nut on something that's been keeping you up, we want to hear about it. We want to help you. Come wander around with us. We'd love to hear what you observed in this episode. What did this episode leave you wondering about? What did you observe and what was said or left unsaid? Leave us a voice memo on smartrookiepodcast.com, DM us on Instagram, or send us an email, smartrookie at thenucleusgroup.com. If you like what you heard today, please support us, subscribe for more, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. This episode of Smart Rookie is brought to you by brand and strategy collaborative, The Nucleus Group, with special thanks to our first season sponsor, Boss Molly Bourbon. Episode art is by Chelsea Carlson, theme music by Ashley Bradford, audio engineering by Sam Nash, and executive production by me, Gabriela Costa. See you next time.